Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Well Well. This is Jarrell. I'm Rachel. Glad that you've joined us again. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. Um, today we have a, a special guest, uh, someone that I've known about for a few years now, and I wanted to have her on because she is. Uh, she wrote this book that I came across a couple years ago that was. I just thought so beautiful in how it represented LGBTQ folks. And it was something I reviewed on our blog. And she was gracious enough to share her time with us and to talk about her work and her life a bit. Um, and so today we're going to be talking with author, and I would consider also an activist. I don't know if she's like comfortable with that term or not. Uh, Kathleen Archambault. Is that, did I say that right? You said it perfectly. Okay, good. Um, thank you so much for being a part of our conversation um, and for joining us today. I, I guess I wanted to start with, like, how did you get started with writing? Just like fundamentally. Well, fundamentally, I love words. And fundamentally, I love to read. And fundamentally, I love to write. So I began seriously writing when I was about 17 at San Francisco State University. And when I was on this big, large campus, after being in a small school, I would write and go to poetry readings and listen to writers. And it was my great joy and still is. Mm. So when you say that you seriously started writing at 17, does, was that, you know, professionally, semi-professionally? I know obviously you were younger, so you, you know, maybe you were, but probably not making, you know, like a full-time career of it. But when you say you started writing seriously, like what did it look like before and what was the transition at that point? Well, I think when I was a kid, I was just surviving the family dynamics. So I had visualized when I was 12 my perfect life, and it included a round oak table, a blue vase of fresh flowers, sunlight pouring in from the ceiling, and me writing. So my dream started at age 12, and at age 17 on a college campus, an independent student, I was able to begin to write in earnestness. That's really cool, and I, I mean, just the, vividness of that imagery I think is so special and I even think back to my growing up um, words were always very important to me like I really liked music I liked to write I remember I had a notebook where I wrote what might be considered poetry um, at a very young age and I just remember how like I don't know like how comforted and safe I found words and stories and expression in that way to be. And so I'm wondering if it was like that for you. Absolutely. I think for me, in addition to just the joy of expressing myself in words, is the comfort and the solace of being able to see how I'm feeling on the page and making it more manageable. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really powerful that something that is so, you know, not to take away its importance, but so basic, like everybody writes to some degree, right, whether it's even just a grocery list, but can be so 
powerful and such an important part of, you know, obviously who you are now, but who you were back then in your journey to become who you are now. Mm-hmm. And Rachel, you asked me, did I write professionally? And I did. Oh, that's I wrote, I wrote professionally for Silicon Valley high tech companies. I was a manager of writing content for both the web and print uh, and video and audio for several Silicon Valley high-tech companies. I was an editor of an employee newsletter at Hewlett Packard that sort of started me on my professional writing journey. I convinced them I was a writer based on my samples from Mm -hmm. my own work. I worked for several nonprofits before that, and I always uh, incorporated writing into what I did. That's amazing. So it sounds like you've really always had a calling to, in whatever way and however you could do it, that writing was just your purpose, for lack of a better word. You kind of, it seems like you always knew that that's what you wanted to do. You're right, Rachel. And my family practitioner doctor, whom I've had for 25 years in my life, he said something to me once, which I think applies to mental health and wellness. He said, you know, a lot of people today are looking to fulfill themselves and I want to be happy. He goes, what's that? He said, (laughs) excellent question. He said, the way to be happy is just simple. Two things, connection and purpose. Mm. Yeah, so that gets to calling. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's I feel like that's an amazing quote. Speaking of writing, like I want to write down that quote. <laughs> what, how, or I should say, how did you get into? Because um, I've seen a lot of your writing now is very focused on the LGBTQ community. How did that transition happen? Was that something you always knew you wanted to be a part of? Did that happen organically? No, um, I'm I'm just closing the door. Um, You know, like many people of my generation, I started out straight. And if I were on the Kinsey scale, I would probably be a four, neither zero nor nor seven. So when I started exploring my lesbian identity, I believe it was in the 70s. And so it took me a long time before I embraced that identity, both within myself and in the world at large, because the world at large at that time in the 80s, 90s, was not a safe place to be openly LGBTQ. And that's part part of the motivation for writing these books so that other uh, young and anybody really in a in a country that's hostile, in a family that's hostile, in a religion that's hostile, in a workplace that's hostile, where coming out fully into your own as an LGBTQ person is challenging, which it is anyway, even in a supportive environment, because right. the truth is we are still a minority. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was, I mentioned as we intro, um, the book that I came across that really resonated with me, uh, which I know you had been writing, obviously, a lot of stuff a long time before this, 
but I think in published in 2017, you released Pride and Joy, LGBTQ Artist Icons and Everyday Heroes. Yes. <laughs> um, it's a great it's a great book and it, you know, I think the thing to me that was so striking about it is you know, when you grow up with a non-mainstream identity, especially when we talk about sexuality, you don't have the representation or the visibility of people who are like you, who feel like you, who seek things that you seek out. And I was just so struck by this book, not only the the high profile people, because as I've gotten older, I've exposed myself to more um, people that might be in different industries that identify it in the spectrum of queer. And I, I just found like that even resonated more with me. What made you want to include those stories? You know, it's interesting that you ask, why did I include Everyday Heroes? And that was a risk because I wasn't sure that people would resonate with people who didn't have as high a profile mm. as the artist or the icons. But to be honest with you, <laughs> you want the honest truth? Mm. Please. It was really hard to get these people. It oh, took really? months and months and months of nailing down a time to interview them mm. and really getting them to participate because they are really famous and some of them and mm. really busy. So I thought, well, I know a lot of everyday heroes that are <laughs> activists that I can include. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to show a representation of all the different cultures, all the different religions, all the different ages that I, as big a representation as I could cast my net. Yeah. So I included Everyday Heroes, and it's ironic, your reaction is the same reaction that many people have. Oh, I could be one of these people. I could live this life. Right. Oh, this is like my own life. Okay. Yeah. It isn't just for the extraordinary, but the everyday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think some of the greatest creative works that are so personal come out of a need that the person who's creating the work had had, but never really got fulfilled or kind of found a place to get. I hear all these stories about people who have created, you know, books and podcasts and documentaries and it's like I created this because it was something I was looking for was that part of your experience is this something that you wish you had had as when you talked about that you were growing up and coming into your identity hmm that's a good question I don't think I knew enough about who I was to be looking for this yeah to be honest but I think that writing this book kept me inspired, kept me uplifted, because as you know, as activists yourselves in this harsh world of ours, particularly mm -hmm. now, particularly mm -hmm. with mental health mm -hmm. and wellness, that it seems as though the whole world is, especially in America, is conspiring against your wellness. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Every day, right? <laughs> so in order to continue to be any kind of, of bright light in the world, you have to keep your own light high. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so 
as I was researching this work, because I didn't just interview these people, I researched thoroughly about every one of them. Mm -hmm. I knew almost all their work. I had seen their videos of their dance performances. I had gone to performances of theirs. I had seen Angels in America with Tony Kushner, etc. I was uplifted. I was inspired. I kept strong in myself. And that really more than anything is what inspired me to write the book for my own inspiration too. Mm. Of course I want to share it. But, you know, I think it's so important for queer people, for people of color, for women, for disabled people to uh, fight against the world definition of you Mm -hmm. and bring your own light into the world. And the only way you can keep doing that is to be surrounded by people who who light the flame and Mm -hmm. keep the flame going and to do things that keep yourself uplifted. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a beautiful sentiment in the idea that you can help yourself while helping others because it's obviously that um, that your work has really made a big impact on the lives of other people and having visibility and being able to see people that are like them making a difference and doing great things. And But at the same time, it was so inspirational and helpful to you. So it's that idea of everyone wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, one of the things I was thinking about, uh, because I, you know, as I was preparing and learning more about you, I know that you had spent some time earlier in your career, I think, writing profiles on people. Um, is that right? Yes, uh, for the San Francisco Bay Times, okay. which is one of the largest circulation, oldest continuous LGBTQ papers in the United States and yeah. in the world, really. Yeah. And it's based in San Francisco, yes. Yeah. And, and so I was thinking about you know Pride and Joy and having this profile aspect. And you know, I, for me, what I think is really cool about that is that it's a book that you can that you can read in totality, but as you just said, if you need little moments, if you need a little bit more light on a day, if you need a bit more inspiration, you could pop into a chapter and read about one person and then sort of go back out in the world and feel like, all right, like I got this, I can do this, there are people who've done this before me, who have been successful, I can keep pushing. And that's what I appreciate so much about having the structure that you do have. So I I just wanted to say that and and thank you for, I I didn't know that was something that I needed, but once it was there, I was like, I really enjoy this, being able to like thumb through it, put it down, come back to it, and it not just be this one and done kind of experience. Mm, Thank you. Thank you. I I think, Jarrell, I read your blog about the book and I was so pleasantly taken by your thorough reaction to the book and you're really grasping what I was trying to do and you did. Good. So that that also means that you were successful in what you set out to do, right? (laughs) So that's good for you too, right? Um, You've interviewed obviously a lot of people, spoken to a lot of people, heard their stories. It sounds like people who are at various ages, various places in their life, what would you say is one of the biggest differences, and I know this is a big question, 
between maybe the experience that you have, that you've heard other people have in the LGBTQ community, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago compared to now. You know, people always talk about how we're making so much progress and then you'll hear people who say, we're not making any progress. Where do you kind of think we really fall in that based on your experience and what you've heard from others? Well, I have the good fortune of having grown up in San Francisco and having generations of my family in San Francisco who are progressive Democrats. And I have the good fortune now of living in Oakland, which is one of the, which boasts one of the largest populations of lesbian couples. Mm. And San Francisco has one of the largest per capita populations of LGBTQ folks. Yeah. So I am really fortunate to live where I live as far as seeing um, a great deal of openness and mm. integration. I mean, in San Francisco, gay people have a lot of power, mm-hmm. particularly gay men. Mm-hmm. Have a lot. Of, gay white men have a lot of power. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And some lesbians and a few people of color have a lot of power, and and I, by that I mean political power. Mm-hmm. So they are in positions of, uh, for example, the new fire chief is a lesbian mm-hmm. for the San Francisco Fire Department, and she's been with the department over 25 years. She's a New Yorker, by the way. <laughs> originally. That. Nice. Yeah, we're <laughs> um, You know, it's kind of like it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And that's what we're living through now. I don't think that L- the queer community has the level of not just acceptance, but the level of embrace Mm -hmm. of the community that some people would think, oh, you have Ellen DeGeneres, you have queer people on The Voice, you have queer people in in theater, you have Ellen Page coming out, you have, you know, Queer Eye, the show. Right. Queer Eye for the straight guy and all that, which to some extent, is a little bit reinforcing of stereotypes. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's reinforcing, oh, queers are really good at hairdressing. They're really good at clothes. They're really good at putting a party together, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, there's still a lot of misinformation out there about the queer community. And... Um, So I think here's where it's gotten better. Mm. We have legal protection on gay marriage, equal marriage. Yeah. So children who are in gay families, LGBT queer families are protected. And Mm. that wasn't true when I was coming up. Yeah. In California, we have employment protections. That is not true in half the United States. Yeah, right. right. That's a little bit slower than I think a lot of us would like. Yeah. You know, in the military, we're kicking out trans military. You know, so it's like we've gone forward, but we've gone backward as well. And this climate in the United States allows for this 
hate spewing rhetoric yeah. on on the right mm -hmm. and that has been the queer community's enemy yeah. and it continues to be really yeah. because any religion any family any community that says you're less than is not a welcoming place right for for lgbtq people yeah. and it's reinforced by the human rights campaign did a study of teenagers and they found that 92 percent had trouble sleeping at night mm -hmm. that all uh, nearly half of them had heard slurs against queer people in their own families. Mm -hmm. uh, so more than half had been bullied at school. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Well, I think it's particularly striking because this year is also World Pride Stonewall 50, right? The 50th anniversary of what I would call a riot, a necessary riot. Um, and it is, it's so interesting because, like you said, we have, obviously we live in New York, there's, it's very, in New York City at that, super progressive in all of these ways. We have all these protections in a place like California. And, but you see the rest of the country, mostly not on the coasts, right? You have the rest of the country that are really struggling to, you know, legislate um, protections for people. Um, and but then on the global scale, it's so interesting, like we're having all this going on in America, right? All this rhetoric that's horrible and awful. But it's almost seems like on the other hand, every day we're hearing about another country abroad that's legalizing same sex marriage. And it's just like it just boggles my mind that that's the time that we're in is that you have, you know, trans black trans women being killed regularly. Um, yet, and you have all these countries that are starting to get with it and saying like, okay, we need to offer same-sex marriage. This is what is necessary and right. But then you also have states that don't want to pass, you know, laws that protect trans people from being discriminated against in housing or at work and employment. And it's just, it's so mind-boggling to me. And I guess, so my question to you is, uh, how do you how do you cope with that? How do you take care of yourself in the midst of all of that stuff? Well, if one, I live in California. Which <laughs> <laughs> is nice. No, I think it's so key that you mentioned that, and I love that you kind of started that when talking about your experience and saying, "Well, I'm from San Francisco. My family is." Because I think it's very easy, you know, being we're from New York City, that you get caught up in a bubble and thinking that the rest of the world is kind of like this. You know, we have a openly gay, HIV positive city council speaker, mm -hmm. and no one really bats an eye. Mm -hmm. But it's so different in the rest of the country, and I think that that's something to remember, is that our experience, you know, in big cities on the coast is not necessarily everyone's experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and w what we always say in the San Francisco Air Bay Area is as soon as you go through the Caldecott Tunnel to Aranda, Lafayette, uh, Pleasanton, all the suburbs, mm -hmm. uh, you will immediately feel the lack of embrace of mm -hmm. being queer. Mm -hmm. For example, one of the little cities, as you go through what we call as soon as you go through the tunnel, it's over. Mm -hmm. And as you go through the tunnel east and you go into the suburban valleys, there's a little town called Dublin, 
and they refused to raise the gay flag this month for Pride Month. <laughs> just like on principle. Yeah. On principle. <laughs> no. Like, okay. <laughs> and there was such a backlash that they now are raising it, but in the meantime, the damage is done right. to anyone who lives in that area. Right. Mm -hmm. They know how people really feel. Right. And so that gets to another legislation globally. There's a big difference between legislation and social mores. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in New Zealand, where my wife is from, they've had civil union and equal marriage long before we have. And so, in fact, in 2014, we got married in New Zealand because we couldn't legally get married federally here. Right. But my partner's, my wife's mother didn't come. Mm. Um, it was not to be spoken of. It was not in polite conversation that you said my wife. Even today, when we were just in New Zealand this year, I went to some queer events for Pride Festival, yeah. and I introduced my wife as my wife, and everybody was flummoxed, flabbergasted, mm -hmm. because the society and the social mores are not as open as the laws. Mm. That's really interesting, because I think part of the argument we hear is that laws first, and then you'll like then the, the social status will change over time. And maybe, I don't know if that's true for specific issues and not for others. Uh, it's just interesting to think about. Well, I think well and, and to your point, um, when Hewlett-Packard was in the process of deciding domestic partner benefits, mm. for 10 years, the Queer Affinity Group presented PowerPoint presentations of statistics and pie charts and all the sort of modeling of what would happen if they if they employed domestic partnership and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. So finally, they hired a theater person to come in and reenact the stories of real Hewlett Packard employees who had suffered mm -hmm. because they didn't have domestic partner benefits or who had been uh, had their tires slashed or, or scrawled in the bathroom. Queers go home. And that changed the the minds and hearts of the executives. Yeah, sure. I think one of the biggest one of the biggest things that you know, as an outsider, I'm not a member of the community, but that I've noticed is that it's a lot of navigating these weird kind of rules and norms, and like when it's okay to use the word wife and when it's not, and when you have to refer to you know, oh, this is my partner, and let people assume if you mean business partner or romantic partner, <laughs> and when you just introduce them intentionally by name rather than saying, like, you know, I can very much always say, like, hey, this is my husband, whereas I feel like in that case, there's a lot more navigating and intentional decision-making, whether you're going to use a word or not, or, you know, intentionally maybe mislead people for safety and for well-being mm -hmm. and for your own sanity. Mm -hmm. And I think that just takes so much effort. So it's like going back to that question of, you know, how do you cope with everything? And, you know, it's obviously very different living in a liberal place, but that navigation of when it's okay to do things and when it isn't, how does that work for you? How have you navigated that environment? 
Well, in a work environment, I was closeted for a long time. Mm. I'll be honest. Yeah. And I'm not proud of that. I remember Harvey Milk saying, come out, come out wherever you are. Then you'll know a co-worker, a son, a daughter, a wife, a mother, a father who's gay, who's LGBTQ. So, um, you know, that, that's how I survived a uh, corporate environment initially. And then I was outed by someone oh, wow. and subsequently fired. And I had to decide, you know, I went to a lawyer and I was talking mm-hmm. about suing them, suing the company. And he said, and he was the top employment lawyer. And he said, you don't have a leg to stand on because you weren't out. And I thought, wow. So yeah. the very next job I got in high technology, I was completely out. Wow. And it was not easy. It was, you know, it didn't feel comfortable. I was with the only one, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. What's nice about today and what has changed is there are more and more of us who are openly queer. So if you work at Salesforce, for example, they have a queer affinity group. If you work at The Gap, they have a queer affinity group. If you work at Hewlett Packard, they have a queer employee affinity group. There's a whole organization called Out and Equal about all these queer affinity groups. So if you work at Chase Manhattan, you have a queer affinity group. And that's what I would say as a coping mechanism and a strategy. Mm-hmm. Find your peeps mm-hmm. yeah. and, and be with them and get the support you need to be fully who you are. Yeah, and I think you brought up a really good point in that I think people, you know, coming from my perspective as someone who is outside the community, the common thought is often that once a person's out, the struggle stops. You know, obviously it's something that you you know you navigate as a minority in society, but I think that's the kind of thought amongst people mm-hmm. outside the community is like, oh, someone came out, like they're good now. The support needed around their identity, they're just that. Yeah, we're coming but, out every day. Right, that it's not <laughs> Hundreds, true. Hundreds, thousands of times. Exactly, because you know you even experience something where you were out in some places but not others, and then you were forced out, and then also kind of forced out again by not wanting to repeat the same negative experience Mm -hmm. and that it's not a one-time thing it is ongoing and to me that's just such an important message to put out to people who are not outside who are outside the community and looking to support people and be allies is remembering that Mm -hmm. that it's ongoing and just because someone might be out and proud and marching in the pride parade and holding hands with their partner doesn't mean that they don't struggle with their identity on a daily basis Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. And I think, um, you know, we talked, as you said, Kathleen, that, you know, have, having allies is important, having people who in your life that can support you, having community with your own is also so important to, to maintaining health, mental health, wellness, because um, people really do take care of one another. When you find your people 
you can ask someone like, what's it been like today? Like what's been going on with you? How, how are you impacted by this news that's come out? By this rhetoric that's sort of been spewed on Twitter that's blown up, like how are you dealing with that? And I think we can all do a really good job about checking in on one another um, regularly and letting that bolster us against all the things that are going on in the world. So. As kind of a closing question statement, what advice would you give to people who are in the position that maybe you were in, you know, 20 years ago that are just really establishing their identity and figuring out who they are? What, what would you tell them? I would say follow your interest and follow the people who are in the community and the queer community that share those interests. So one of the things I did was ballroom dancing. <laughs> and became part of the same-sex partner dancing world and met a whole array of people, not only in the U.S., but around the world. We competed in the gay games in Cologne with 400 dancers from around the world. And being in that world was so affirming. Mm -hmm. You know, first of all, dance is affirming, right? And then when you're dancing with other queer people from all over the world at all levels, Mm -hmm. that's the cool thing about the gay games. It's all about participation. You don't have to be Martina Navratilova to play (laughs) tennis at the gay games. So for us, as a couple, we were involved in ballroom dancing and, and country western dancing and swing dancing and salsa dancing and Latin dancing, and so we met uh, in the queer community. Argentine tango dancing, and so there's this whole, uh, there are all these subgroups within the the queer same-gender partner dancing community. So that, that was for us really cool. So I would say to someone, what are you interested in? What matters to you? What floats your boat? Okay, so say it's golf. Find a queer golf group. If it's hiking, find a queer hiking group. If it's religion, find a religion that embraces you. Uh, join a United Methodist reconciling congregation, for example, mm-hmm. or belong to the Episcopal group the subgroup of queers who are Episcopalian, as an example, or queer Buddhists, you name it, queer Muslim, you know? So I would say follow your your natural instincts, follow your interests, and let that lead you to queer communities that you enjoy. That'll be fun to be around. When I was coming up, that was the bars. Yeah. The, the queer bars. That was kind of, and maybe the women's center. <laughs> right. Where I met my first lover. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But now on campuses, there are queer, straight, gay, straight alliances in high school. There are queer uh, groups on campus. That there are book reading clubs, there, you know, you name it, you can find it. Um, if you're in a small rural community, that might be much harder. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's really sage advice. Um, yeah, because there, it, it would be, 
there are less options in certain places, and 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 there's nothing better than following what your heart tells you that you're interested in, that you love, that you're um, inspired by. Um, so I think that's a really a really good point. And I, I'm probably not one that people really think of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just sort of like going with their interests first and seeing like, oh, is there is there a, a, a queer space that does this? I think so many times, especially nowadays, because in theory, we're so much more open. Um, people will say, oh, well, I like golf, so I'm going to go golf. And then it's not a necessarily a queer-friendly group where they think it's queer-friendly, and then they realize, actually, this is kind of toxic for me later. And so then that can be really heartbreaking. Um, so I, I just think that's a really good point. I also just wanted to uh, note that you also released uh, another, published another book this year, right? Um, make it better. Yeah, so tell everyone uh, a little bit about that um, before we wrap up today. So there was a New York gay dad, Eric Rosswood. He's now in New York. And he approached me and said, I want to write this book, but I want it to be about LGBTQ people who have really made a big contribution to all of their field, whatever their field was. And I want it to be quick. I want it to be hip. I want it to, you know, be a a short read, blah, blah, blah. So he was a millennial-ish. He's like (laughs) just on the border of X. (laughs) and he was a gay dad, and he was East Coast, I was West Coast, so he asked me to collaborate with him, and I thought, okay, I'm not doing anything right now, why don't I do that, because I was preparing for some other event. Mm -hmm. So we did this book, and what I love about it, it's about um, 40 Uh, LGBTQ leaders in their field, from activism to music to religion, science, sports, film, dance, business, government, military, literature. So we broke it down into different segments. Mm -hmm. And each each one of the little profiles that we did are a page or a page and a half. That's it. They're really short. And then in the back of the book, there are all these references to websites. Mm. So the book is really geared for middle, high school, and college. But everyone can benefit because most people don't know that the prime minister of Ireland is gay. I didn't know that. He's also (laughs) Indian, Irish. He's also a medical doctor. And um, he was a huge advocate for marriage equality for the referendum in Ireland. So stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people have not heard of the Wachowskis. Have you heard of the Wachowskis? Yeah. I love them. Oh, okay. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm I'm familiar with them, and I love them. I love everything they've done. Okay. So you're unusual. (laughs) Everybody knows them. They're the trans filmmakers. Yeah. Um, do you know, what's this guy's name? Uh, do you know Daniela Vega? It sounds vaguely familiar, but I can't place the name. She is the first trans, openly trans actress from Chile 
to win an Academy Award for Best Actress for Una Mujer Fantástica. She's now, she's now in the Netflix um, film series Tales of the City. Have you all seen it? No. Not yet. Great. I'm learning all kinds of things. Like, yeah. It's it's way better than the first one. And Daniela Vega plays uh, a trans activist in San Francisco. Yeah, it's really good. So, um, this book is really geared differently than my book. My book was in depth interviews directly with these individuals. This book is more okay, let's vet these people, let's kind of give everyone a teaser on who they are, and if they're interested, they'll look up more about them on the back. And so it's geared to teachers, educators, college groups, queers, straight line, high school kids, middle school kids, and the teacher can say, pick one of these people and write an essay about them. And all the references are in the back. That's so great. it's really easy. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> and there's something for everyone in here. Yeah. You know, there's Tim Cook of Apple. There's, yeah. do you know who Beth Ford is? Uh, maybe. I can't. No, you don't. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Tell me. She is the first openly lesbian CEO of a Fortune 500 company. She's the CEO of Land Lakes, the butter company. Ah. I um, didn't know the first it. first something. Like, I knew she was a, I read it somewhere. She was a first of something, and I couldn't place it. Yeah, I didn't know it. And, mm-hmm. and when she was announced was right before this book came out. Oh, wow. And we thought we have to have her in there. Mm-hmm. So we got her in there. That's awesome. So I I learned a lot by writing this book and writing with a millennial and dealing with his sensibilities and really negotiating back and forth. And he has 100,000 Twitter followers and I have 75. (laughs) Follow me on Twitter, by the way. We'll leave all your handles and everything in the show notes for today. Yeah. So we can, we'll get you awesome. eight Twitter followers yes. at least. Can I tell you a quick little anecdote about social media? Yeah. When I met Ariana Huffington at a, at a conference where I was presenting and she was presenting, and this was back in 2006, mm. there was a breakout room for all the presenters. She was a keynote a workshop presenter, right? Mm. So I was in the breakout room with the only person there getting her fruit and her bottled water. And she said to me, write for my blog, read my blog, write my blog. And that was when she was first starting. Yeah. And then like a few years selling the blog to AOL. Mm. (laughs) That's how she started. She was an incredible self-promoter. Yeah. Uh, of her work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for sharing that, and, and thank you for talking about your new book. Um, we are really grateful to have had you have this conversation with us today. Uh, thank you for sharing all the bits that you did. Um, yeah, Rachel, you have any 
closing thought? No, I appreciate it. I appreciate all the new information. Um, I think it's great and you have such an amazing perspective and you've obviously given so much back to this community and just to people in general. So I thank you for that as well. Yeah. Um, so if you would like to keep up with us, we'll make sure to put Kathleen's information in our show notes so you can follow her on Twitter, get her numbers up. Um, we, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at FVivaWellnessNYC. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Jarell Carabello. And you can find me at Rachel Gersten. And so please feel free to listen to our podcast, rate and review on iTunes, and uh, we will see you next time. Bye.